Well, would you take your Bibles and turn along with me to the table of contents? <laughs> I'm quite serious. Uh, you know, you probably don't turn to Habakkuk a lot. So we're going to be starting a series in Habakkuk. And in that start this morning, we're also going to be in 2 Kings and we're going to be in 2 Chronicles. So if you have those fancy little uh, strings that hang down from your Bible, they were made for a day like today. I have two, the deluxe edition. Maybe you have one, but maybe you have a card or something and you could put a card there in Habakkuk. You could put a card there in 2 Kings. You can put a finger there in 2 Chronicles. And that'll just make things go a little smoother today, okay? So it's not a Bible drill or anything like that, but we are going to be turning to some different passages this morning. This morning we are beginning this new series on this little book, Habakkuk. And the theme for this series is Gospel Answers to Life's Toughest Questions. Living in the midst of a fallen, sinful world, questions and doubts can plague even those with the deepest faith in God. All of us, even Christians, firmly resolved to follow the Lord, can have a dark night of the soul often comes to us as a result of circumstances, disappointments, diagnosis, losses, grief. The world we live in can be a very, very hard place to live in. Many of you know that I love blues music. One of the reasons I like it is because it reflects a pretty accurate view of the fallen, broken world we live in. That it's not all rainbows and blue skies. Blues music doesn't sugarcoat the often harsh realities of life in this world. Blues music leans into the truth that life is often hard. Harder than we'd like to admit. A good example of this is B.B. King's song, Inflation Blues. Anybody got the inflation blues here this morning? Hey, Mr. President, and all your congressmen too, you got me frustrated and I don't know what to do. I'm trying to make a living. I can't save a cent. It takes all of my money just to eat and pay my rent. I got the blues I got those inflation blues. Maybe you've got them too. Most of us get the blues sometimes. And most of us will at some point in life ask the question, Lord, where are you? Where are you in all of this? Where are you when life gets tough? That's the question Habakkuk is asking. Lord, where are you in all of this? You'll find this little book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament nestled among the minor prophets. Now, the minor prophets are called minor not because they are insignificant. We might call them minor because of the the note they tend to play. But really, they're called minor because of their relative Shortness compared to the major prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, which are much longer works. Habakkuk is a minor prophet. It has just three short chapters. But in these three short chapters, we see Habakkuk wrestling with some of life's biggest questions, toughest questions. Now, the first two chapters are a dialogue between the prophet Habakkuk and Yahweh, the Lord. Habakkuk and the Lord are talking to one another back and forth about the problems that Habakkuk sees all around him. The last chapter is in the form of a psalm, a song of praise 
composed by Habakkuk in response to the dialogue he's just had in the first two chapters with the Lord. So if we did a very simple outline of the book, it would look like this. Habakkuk's problems in chapters 1 and 2 and Habakkuk's praise in chapter 3. That's easy enough, right? Habakkuk's problems, Habakkuk's praise. The book of Habakkuk was written sometime at the close of the 7th century B.C. That's a long time ago. It was written likely between 608 and 605 B.C., shortly before the Babylonian invasion of Judah and the deportation of 10,000 Jews to Babylon. A deportation into captivity that included such notables as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or better known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So Habakkuk writes at a time when the storm clouds are starting to form. And that is the threat from without. But at the beginning, Habakkuk doesn't even see the threat that exists from outside, from the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, as they're called here. We know, however, that the problem Habakkuk was really seeing was the problem from within Judah. The problem from within God's own people. Now, we know almost nothing about the man Habakkuk. We know he was Jewish. We know he was a prophet of God. He may have been a Levite, and he may have worked in the temple as a musician, given the music, musical notations included in the last sentence of this book. For it says there at the, at the very close of the book, For the choir director on my stringed instruments. So he played blues guitar, probably, I'm guessing. We know his name means something like one who embraces. We know there's a plant that bears the same name. We know that Habakkuk lived in a time of great national wickedness. Stress, injustice, and trouble. That sounds somewhat familiar. Habakkuk has been called the prophet of faith because one of the key themes of the book of Habakkuk is faith in God in the face of problems, in the face of trouble, in the midst of the harshness of life. Faith in God. And one of the key verses of the book of Habakkuk comes in Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. It says, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. The just will live by faith. Living by faith. The last part of that verse is quoted three times in the New Testament. It's quoted in Romans and Galatians and Hebrews. And it became one of the great inspirations for and rallying cries of the Great Reformation. As the precious truth of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone was recovered. The righteous will live by faith. So what exactly was going on in Habakkuk's time that was causing so much trouble and stress for him and for the nation? Well, for that, we need to go back in history a bit. All right, we're going to go back in history all the way to Genesis 12, where God chose Abram. Out of all the nations of the world, out of all the peoples of the world, God chose Abram. God had promised to make Abram a great nation and give him a land, a seed, and a blessing. And that land, we know, of course, was the promised land of Israel. By faith, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Abraham's descendants, dwelt in the land of promise until, as you may remember, a famine forced Jacob and his family to move south to Egypt in order to survive that famine. And while in Egypt, after the death of Joseph, Jacob's son, the Hebrews, who were descendants of Jacob's family, were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years until God heard their cries for help and deliverance, and he delivered them miraculously from the bondage of Egypt through the leadership of Moses. Moses led them out of Egypt 
back toward the promised land, but because of their stubborn disobedience, God had them wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. And during that time, God gave his people the law, including the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. After Moses' death, God used Joshua to lead the people back to the promised land, to cross the river Jordan. And as the 12 tribes of Israel began to take their land and settle in back at the promised land, God established judges who would help them in the process of settling in. But the people were not content with just judges, and they wanted a king to rule over them, just like all the other nations had. So God gave them a king, King Saul. King Saul looked good on the outside, but he wasn't devoted to the Lord on the inside. So God took the kingdom from Saul, and he gave it to David. David was a man after God's own heart. And David desired to build God a permanent temple in Jerusalem. But God chose David's son, Solomon, instead to be the one to build that temple in Jerusalem after he became the next king. Now Solomon was incredibly wise, having asked God for wisdom, but not wise enough to avoid having many wives and concubines and going after other gods. This resulted in disobedience throughout the land. So that the Lord disciplined the once united kingdom of Israel and divided them into two kingdoms. A northern kingdom of ten tribes and a southern kingdom known as Judah, consisting of the tribes, the two tribes of Benjamin and Judah. Both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Israel had their own kings a long succession of kings ruling over them, most of them were terrible. Some of them really stand out as bad. Now Habakkuk lived in the southern kingdom, probably in Jerusalem. The king who was ruling in Judah at that time, at the time Habakkuk writes, was a king by the name of Jehoiakim. Now, to understand the situation a bit better, we need to go back in the time of the reign of Jehoiakim back to his great-grandfather, Manasseh. Now, Manasseh was an evil, wicked king. He's one of those standouts. When it came to wickedness, he really outdid himself. And he reigned in Judah for 55 years, starting when he was 12. Now, this is where I want you to turn in your Bibles. Keep your place in Habakkuk if you're already there. Turn your Bibles to 2 Kings 21. 2 Kings 21. If you're using a uh, pew Bible, it's page 291. Second Kings 21. We're going to learn about Manasseh. Again, this is the great-grandfather to Jehoiakim, who is ruling at the time that Habakkuk writes. Tracking with me? All right, we need to know a little family history here. 2 Kings 21, verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was, well, you see it there. (laughs) Verse 2. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. According to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. And he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah. And as Ahab king of Israel had done and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. He built altars in the house of the Lord of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem I will put my name. For he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He made his sons pass through the fire. He sacrificed his own kids and the kids of the nation. He practiced witchcraft and he used divination and dealt with mediums and spiritists. 
He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking the Lord to anger. Verse 7. Then he set the carved image of Asherah that he had made in the house of which the Lord said to David and his, to his son Solomon, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not make the feet of Israel wander any more from the land which I gave their fathers, if only they will observe to do according to all that I have commanded them. And according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen. And Manasseh seduced them, the nation, to do evil more than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. They outdid their pagan neighbors in wickedness. Well, thankfully, that's not the end of the story for Manasseh. The Lord was gracious to Manasseh. Turn with me to 2 Chronicles 33, page 340, if you're using a pew Bible. 2 Chronicles 33. I love to hear those pages turn. 2 Chronicles 33. Here's the rest of the story of Manasseh. 2 Chronicles 33.10, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. They stopped their ears to the Lord's word. Verse 11, therefore the Lord brought commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them. Now the Assyrians were a powerful people that were on the scene before the Babylonians came. Well, they were the They were the powerhouse of the world at the time of Manasseh. And the king of Assyria came against them and they captured Manasseh with hooks. Bound him with bronze chains and took him to Babylon. When he was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when Manasseh prayed to him, he w- God was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. So Manasseh, no one's ever beyond the reach of the Lord, right? Manasseh outdid the pagans. And yet he got to the bottom and there he met the Lord. And the Lord graciously granted him repentance. Manasseh repented. He tears down all the altars throughout Judah. And he reverses all the evil things he had done. Look at 2 Chronicles 33.15. Just a couple of verses down. 2 Chronicles 33.15. Manasseh removed the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord. As well as all the altars which he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord. And in Jerusalem. And he threw them outside the city. He set up the altar of the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it. He ordered Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Nevertheless, verse 17 the people still sacrificed in the high places, although only to the Lord their God. But see, these high places were dedicated to false gods, and that wasn't where they were to be sacrificing anyway. So syncretism had taken over and taken root, so they were sacrificing to the Lord, but in a way he never commanded them to. It was strange fire being offered to the Lord. And that, because Manasseh had... held sway for so long in such an evil and wicked direction that it would take a long time to course correct. Although Manasseh had repented, there were still lasting national effects from his former life of idolatry and wickedness. After Manasseh died, his son Ammon became king. Now which part of his father, Manasseh's life, would Ammon follow? Would he follow the path of idolatry and wickedness? Of Manasseh's early life, or would he follow the part of his father's life that was faithful to the Lord? Second Chronicles 33, 21. Look with me there. Second Chronicles 33, 21. Ammon was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, as Manasseh his father had done. And Ammon sacrificed to all the carved images which his father Manasseh had made, and he served them. Moreover, he did not humble himself before the Lord as his father Manasseh had done, but Ammon multiplied guilt. So now he outdoes his father who outdid the pagans. Finally, his servants conspired against him and put him to death in his own house. 
But the people of the land killed the conspirators against King Ammon, and the people of the land made Josiah, his son, king in his place. All right, so here comes Josiah, a new king over Judah. What would he be like? This is Manasseh's grandson, 2 Chronicles 34. 2 Chronicles 34, are you with me? Okay, let's see what Josiah does. King Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. He did right in the sight of the Lord, and he walked in the ways of his father, who? David. This is a king that's like David. And he did not turn aside to the right or to the left, for in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still a youth, how old is he? 16 about that time. He began to seek the God of his father David. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim, the carved images, and the molten images. They tore down the altars of the Baals in his presence and the incense altars that were high above them. He chopped down. Also, the Asherim, the carved images, and the molten images, he broke in pieces and ground to powder, and he scattered it on the graves of those who sacrificed to them. Oh, that's good. Verse 5, then he burned the bones of the priests on their altars and purged Judah and Jerusalem in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, Simeon, even as far as Naphtali in their surrounding ruins. He also tore down the altars and beat the Asherim and the carved images into powder. And he chopped down all the incense altars throughout the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. The purge was on under Josiah. Under Josiah's reign, the written law of God, which had been lost through neglect. Like, where did we put that Bible? I, it's got to be around here somewhere. And they found it. And that resulted in a great reform and recovery of righteousness. The temple was purged of idols and restored to the service of Yahweh. But sadly, after ruling for 31 years, Josiah, good King Josiah, was killed in a battle against Egypt. And Josiah's son was made king, and his name was Jehoiakim. And this was the king that was ruling when Habakkuk writes the letter. So what kind of king was Jehoiakim? Is he going to follow his father, Josiah? In the ways of the Lord and be like King David? Or is he going to be like the old days under Manasseh? Second Chronicles 36.5. You with me? Second Chronicles 36.5. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. You don't have to turn there, but 2 Kings 23.37 says, He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. So as Habakkuk writes this, the evil king Jehoiakim is ruling over Jerusalem and Judah. He's overturned all the progress that had been made under Josiah. And therefore, evil has spread throughout Judah. And they're sacrificing to the pagan gods, and they're doing all the wicked things that had been done so often in the history of Israel and Judah. And this sad state of affairs had given Habakkuk a serious case of the blues. This is the background and the situation that we come to when we turn in our Bibles to the little book of Habakkuk. So now back to Habakkuk. Page 664 if you're in the Pew Bible. Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 1. Let me read it for us. I'm going to read through verse 11. Yes, that was my introduction. That's the background. All right, Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. How long, O Lord, will I call for help? And you will not hear. I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? 
Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists. Contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Now the Lord's answer in verse 5. Look among the nations. Observe. Be astonished. Wonder. Because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. That fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate within themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. They, their horde of faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings and Rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. Then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on. But they will be held guilty. They whose strength is their God. This is the word of God. Let's pray together and ask for God's help in understanding and obeying his word. Heavenly Father, in the words of that old Anglican prayer, what we know not, teach us. What we are not, make us. What we have not, give us. Lord, we know that you have all things sufficient for what we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of your Son. Show us this morning wisdom. Wisdom from above. Show us your Son, Jesus Christ, exalted above all. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this morning, as we begin our study of this little book, Habakkuk, we're going to see this morning two realities to remember when life gets hard. Two realities to remember when life gets hard. All right, the first reality to remember when you've got the blues. Remember, it can sometimes seem like God doesn't hear, care, or do anything to help. It can seem like that. The small book opens up with a word of introduction in verse 1. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. An oracle is a pronouncement. An announcement, if you will. A voice lifted up to declare a message from God. Hear the word of the Lord. The word oracle can be translated a little more literally as a burden. A message from the Lord that was weighty and significant, that was heavy. Which rested on Habakkuk's shoulders like a heavy weight. A burden unrelieved until he proclaimed it to the people. It was an oracle that came to him by way of a vision that he saw. Some kind of God-given revelation through a vision. If you look at Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 2. Habakkuk 2.2. We see more about this vision. The Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens towards the goal and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. For it will certainly come. It will not delay. This, of course, speaks to the certainty and assurance we can have in God's word as being true. And coming to fruition. This was the true vision that Habakkuk received. 
Now, what was this oracle, this weighty message from the Lord? And we're back in chapter 1. Well, it begins with a pointed confrontational question from Habakkuk. Habakkuk's kind of had it. He's waited, he's waited, and he's waited. But he has heard nothing from heaven. Nothing from the Lord. And so Habakkuk says, How long, O Lord, how long will I call for help and you will not hear? Ever feel like Habakkuk? Ever feel like the heavens were brass? That your prayers weren't getting through? That you're calling and calling and calling but no one ever picks up? This is exactly how Habakkuk was feeling. How long is this going to go on, Lord? How long are you going to ignore me? How long are you going to stop your ears to my voice? That's quite a beginning to a book, isn't it? The book opens with a complaint. The book opens with a problem. And from Habakkuk's perspective at this point, the problem is God's. He won't listen. Habakkuk is not alone, by the way, in feeling this way. The psalmist says in Psalm 13, 1, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? You're avoiding me, aren't you? Now, all of this may seem kind of aggressive in prayer, perhaps even bordering on blasphemy, but it isn't. God is mindful that we are but dust, that we are weak and weary, that we are limited in our understanding, especially in our understanding of His ways and His purposes, and He's patient with us. And he welcomes our cries and our questions. He is, after all, our Heavenly Father. Our Father who is in heaven. So Habakkuk comes to the Lord with honest questions and with real frustration. And he brings the questions of his heart to the God who has the answers but for the moment isn't giving them. Why won't you answer me, Lord? So when life gets hard, remember that it's not an uncommon human experience. It's not an uncommon Christian experience to feel like the Lord is not hearing you, that He isn't listening. Beloved, you're in good company. Habakkuk was there. The psalmist was there. The Lord Jesus was there. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Next we see that it can seem like the Lord doesn't care. Not only that the Lord doesn't listen, but the Lord doesn't care. I cry out to you violence, yet you do not save. The situation in Judah is terrible. Things are going from bad to worse. Those who were in power, beginning with the evil king Jehoiakim, were guilty of terrible abuse and exploitation, using their power for personal gain, using their power to abuse others. Listen to what scholar F.F. Bruce says of the reign of Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim inherited none of his father's qualities. His father was who? Josiah, the good king, right? He inherited none of his father's qualities. He exploited his subjects for his own aggrandizement and had no concern for justice or mercy. Those who held subordinate positions of power in the land, governors and judges, took their cue from him. 
And the result was widespread oppression, injustice, and violence. There was no hope of redress except in God. And God did not seem to be taking any action to vindicate his own law or indeed his own character. That's the problem Habakkuk sees all around him. So Habakkuk cries out to the Lord, Violence, Lord! Look around! Don't you see this happening? Don't you see your people abused and mistreated? Don't you see justice perverted? But yet you do not save. The Lord didn't appear to do anything. It didn't seem like the Lord cared about any of it. And this was so perplexing to Habakkuk. God is holy. How could he just seemingly sit idly by while all of this evil is going on? Ever feel that way? Ever have thoughts like that? What are you doing, Lord? Don't you see this going on in my life? Don't you see this going on in the world? Ever feel like the Lord doesn't care? I mean, if he cared, wouldn't he do something? Wouldn't he act? Wouldn't he stop it? Wouldn't he intervene? Habakkuk continues his lament and questioning in verse 3. Why do you make me see iniquity? I've grown in holiness, God, and I hate to see sin, and yet I see it at every turn. The verb here gives the sense of continual action. Why do you make me see iniquity continually and cause me to look on wickedness day after day after day? You could snap your fingers and it would all change, but you don't. The iniquity and wickedness are further spelled out in verse 4. God's law is ignored. Justice is never upheld. The wicked always seem to have the upper hand and get ahead. And they surround the righteous and therefore justice comes out perverted. The scales are tipped in favor of the wicked. And here I am crying out to you, and you don't answer. In the midst of it all, it seems as though God isn't listening to our cries. He doesn't seem to care. He doesn't seem to be doing anything about it. And it's all too much, Lord. How long, O Lord? Again, Habakkuk wasn't alone. Job felt that way, having lost everything. Paul felt this way with his thorn in the flesh. When life gets hard and it seems like the Lord isn't listening, that he doesn't care, and that he doesn't seem to be doing anything to help, remember, remember, That this is not an uncommon perception among God's people. Perception. It's a perception. It seems like the Lord isn't listening. It seems like He doesn't care. It seems as though He's not doing anything. You are not crazy. It really does seem that way. You're also not necessarily unspiritual for thinking that, for perceiving that. In times of extreme hardship, it is not sinful to cry out with the saints of old, How long, O Lord? How long? That brings us to the second reality we need to remind ourselves of. When life gets hard. And that is the Lord does in fact hear, care, and he is always at work. Fulfilling his perfect purposes. 
purposes that are often unknown or mysterious to us. And this comes from verses 5 through 11. In verse 5, the Lord begins to answer Habakkuk's question. But Habakkuk isn't going to like the answer. Look with me at Habakkuk. Now I got to get there. Chapter 1, verse 5. Look among the nations. Observe. Be astonished. Wonder. Because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. The Lord says to Habakkuk's complaint, look around. Habakkuk's like, I have been. No, no, Habakkuk, look around. It's in the plural, so these answers aren't just for Habakkuk. It's to the whole nation. Everyone, look around you. And observe, be astonished, and wonder. Those two words that are side by side there, be astonished and wonder, are from the same verb with different stem formations, which make it stand out even more as an emphatic assertion. The Legacy Standard Bible did a nice job here of communicating the similarity. It says, be astonished, be astounded. That's the effect. Be astonished, be astounded. The Lord goes on to say that He is doing something in your days. His work is going on right now. I am working, Habakkuk. I've got this. I've got it all in hand. I'm doing a work in your days. The work is going on right now. God is working a work. And this work will come to fruition within this generation. It's happening. So great and so astonishing and so amazing is this work that if you were told about it ahead of time, you still wouldn't believe it. You'd say, nah, uh No way. Shut up. <laughs> the Lord is saying, look, I'm doing something right now that's going to blow your mind. And it will, as we'll see. And what is this amazing and astonishing work the Lord is busy doing? Verse 6 has the answer. Behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. What? This is not the solution Habakkuk was looking for. I guarantee you Habakkuk wasn't praying, Lord, send the Babylonians in. Chaldeans are the Babylonians. They're an ancient enemy of the people of God. Verse 7 through 11 are just a blow-by-blow account of how powerful and terrifying the Babylonians were. The Babylonians defeated the Assyrians, who were previously the world superpower. They defeated them at their capital of Nineveh. And they reigned supreme, the Babylonians did. Verse 7 says they are dreaded and feared. They do whatever they want. What does an 800-pound gorilla do? Whatever he wants. That's who the Babylonians are. Verse 8, they got fast horses. They have a mighty cavalry. They hunt their prey like wolves at night. They're skilled. They strike like eagles from the air. Verse 9. They thirst for violence. They gather captives like sand. Too many to count. Verse 10. Kings and authorities mean nothing to them. No fortress is strong enough to keep them out. They erect siege walls and siege ramps that can breach and destroy the mightiest of fortresses. They're good at what they do. Shock and awe is what they do. Verse 11. They're going to sweep through like an unstoppable wind. But they will be held guilty. 
Their sins have not gone unseen by God and that time of their judgment is going to come because they've made a God out of their own strength. But before that happens, I'm going to use them for my purposes. I'm going to use this wicked, evil nation to correct my people, to humble them and bring them back to me. Habakkuk says, how long, O Lord? In this wickedness I see all around me. And the Lord answers, soon, son. Soon and very soon. And I'm going to put an end to it. I'm going to judge the wickedness of Judah and Jerusalem. But I'm going to do it in a way that's going to make your head spin. I'm going to do it according to my plan, my way. I'm going to use the wicked Babylonians as my tool to enact judgment and put an end to this wickedness. Now that is not the answer to Habakkuk's prayers. That's not the answer he had in mind anyway. It was an answer that made no sense to Habakkuk. And frankly, Habakkuk didn't like it at all. And we're going to see that. Because he shares his displeasure with the Lord. But what we see here is this. When we feel like the Lord doesn't hear us, when it seems like He doesn't care, when it seems as though He isn't doing anything to help, we are wrong. Our perceptions are incorrect. What seems to be the case is not the case. God, in fact, does hear us. He does care. And He is always at work. Working out His perfect purposes, which often to us are mysterious and sometimes counterintuitive completely. Psalm 22, 24 reminds us that God has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. Hang on to that. Psalm twenty-two, twenty-four. The Lord hears. The Lord cares. And the Lord is at work. Of course, when the Lord hears and answers our cries for help, he doesn't always answer in the way we expect. Isaiah 55, 8 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You see, the Lord can see it all. We're, we're myopic. We, we can only see a very narrow bit of our lives and of the world around us. But the Lord sees it all. The Lord has a plan. And He is working it. God's answer to our prayers, God's work that He is working behind the scenes, is not often what we would expect it to be. But rest assured, it is always what is best for us. Romans 8.28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. If you're ever tempted to doubt that God hears, that God cares, that God is at work to help us, especially when God's answer and God's provision seems radically different than what we would have thought. If you're ever tempted to question God's goodness, just look to the cross of Jesus Christ. That is not a solution that anyone would have expected the disciples refused to, refused to listen to Jesus clearly tell them that he was going to Jerusalem to die. But they didn't believe it. It all seemed unthinkable. Peter even rebuked the Lord. Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke him saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. 
We get those two things mixed up all the time. God's interests and our interests. God's ways and our ways. When you're filled with doubt, when life gets hard and you cry out, Lord, where are you? Look to the cross and see Jesus there. Look to Jesus and be reminded that the Lord hears, that the Lord cares, and that the Lord is always at work, fulfilling His perfect purposes, which are often unknown and mysterious to us. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. God has promised us that He always hears, always cares, and is always acting for our good. Even when life gets hard and doesn't make any sense. And the cross of Jesus proves that beyond any doubt. Jesus has promised to always be with us, to never forsake us, and come what may in this world to deliver us to our final home safe and sound. To all those who believe on Him. So when life gets hard and you're wondering where the Lord is, remind yourself that His promises are true and live by faith in Him. This is what it means when Habakkuk says, the righteous will live by faith. May the Lord help us as we seek to live in this fallen world by faith in God's promises. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your promises are true. Thank you, as we've just really seen a, a lot of the scope and sweep of biblical history here, that you're faithful to your promises even when your people are unfaithful. Thank you that you have our good in mind and that sometimes you apply the rod of discipline to our lives to correct us, to get our attention, to put us back on the right path. Lord, we are so limited in our understanding and our ability to discern what you're doing in any given situation. And this can leave us feeling helpless, can leave us frustrated, can leave us wondering where you are and what you're doing. In those moments, Lord, may we remember your promise to never leave us or forsake us, to be with us even to the end of the age, and to bless us in every circumstance. Thank you, Lord, for your promises. Grow us in faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.